This podcast has bad words in it. You have been warned. I'm Zach Bohannon. I make my living telling stories, but I'm also a metalhead, retired drummer, avid gamer, and most importantly, a loving husband and father. Join me each week as I sit down with a fellow dad and discuss balancing a creative life with family, careers, hobbies, and all the other things guys love. This is the Creator Dad Podcast. All right, dude. So I have to ask you, um, are you still shocked that I'm as short as I am? <laughs> it, it just, it honestly surprised me. It's one of those weird things, you know, like, it, you know, I, I grew up, you know, driving to work basically every day, listening to like 40 minutes of radio. And like, you get this picture in your head of what the DJs look like, um, because, but you never actually see them. And all of a sudden you see them in person, they look nothing like what you would expect their voice to sound like. Now I've physically seen you because we, you know, we have video going when we record these podcasts, but you know, you're not standing next to a tape measure and, and either is Jay, you know, like Jay doesn't, to me, doesn't appear to be as tall as he actually is. Um, and for some reason, like the first time I met him at, at horror writers, um, convention, I, I just remember him being shorter than me. Um, but like my memory for that kind of stuff is just t- terrible. Um, and yeah, I'm sorry if I made fun of your height. It's not, your <laughs> I, don't care. I, I, I totally blame your parents. I, you could totally blame my parents. So my dad's like, my dad's like five ten five or something. So, but my mom is like five foot two. So I, I ended up, I'm like five, eight, I think, or something like that. So but uh, yeah, Jay surprised me too, man. Like the first time I met him was when we did the train thing with Joanna and Lindsay Broker. And right. I, I met Joanna like moments before I met Jay and Joanna was shorter than me. Huh. Um, and uh, yeah, and not by a lot, but, uh, and, but then I met Jay and Jay was like towering over me. And I was just like, I didn't expect it either. It was really kind of weird, you know? <laughs> Height is a strange thing, you know, like, you know, this is a podcast about fathers and kids and stuff like my, my daughter is four now, uh, but she's in like five and six T clothes. And she's always been super tall for her age. So like even at three, she was wearing like five T, um, you know, which is a weird thing when kids go to the playground, because like kids that were actually like five years old would come up to her and talk to her and want to play with her. Um, but you know, a three year old can't quite interact the same way a five year old can. Exactly. So it's just, it's this weird dynamic, but we're trying to figure out where the height comes from. Cause I'm, I was, I was six feet at my peak. I, I'm actually shrinking now, which is something that happens at like 45 or 50. It's like you go into the doctor and all of a sudden you're like a quarter inch shorter than you were the last time you were there. So I don't know what happens there. Um, but like, I, I'm not that tall, you know, at five ten or six feet or wherever it is they think I am right now. My wife is, you know, five foot nothing, but like my daughter is so freaking tall. And we, you know, neither of our families really have that in the history that we know of. Um, so we, we don't know where it comes from. And I, I know there's a way for doctors to tell us how tall she's going to actually get. And I know she's old enough for that test. But with um, COVID, you know, we've kind of been locked in the house. So we haven't ventured out to try and do that. But I, I'm really getting curious if she's going to you know, cap out like around my, my wife's height um, or just keep going and end up being, you know, like 5'10", 5'11". You know, it's, for a girl, I guess that would be weird. You know, like it's it, typically they tend to be a little shorter. So I'm kind of hoping she ends up in that five, you know, five, four, five, six range. But yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, it is, it is definitely more rare for women to be taller. And uh, like my, my wife has a friend who is, I think she's like six foot or something. And it's, it's, you're just like, when you meet her, you're like, oh, wow. <laughs> like you don't see women that tall, you know, that, that often, but uh, 
Yeah. I'm curious with my daughter too, because my wife and I are almost the exact same height. So we always joke that we're pretty sure how tall Haley's going to be, but, but again, like there can be other family things in there and all that, which makes it, uh, which makes it interesting. But, but it was, it was, I tell you, man, it was awesome to, um, for me and Jay to finally be in the same place. I mean, you and I have been talking on the podcast for a while, but had, and it surprised some people when I told them, I was like, yeah, that was the first time JD and I had actually met, like you guys had met, but you know, the three of us hadn't always hadn't been in the same room. And, you know, you, you mentioned COVID obviously that was uh, like the first, you know, one of the first gatherings uh, I, I, you know, that type of thing during COVID and stuff. So it was just, I don't know. It was, it was nice though, to get everybody in the room. Well, it's technology, you know, it's like, it's, it, I've got so many people in my life now that I've never physically met. Um, you know, some people I, I've known for, you know, four or five, you know, six years, strictly by email, you know, like we don't even talk on the phone, but, and then there's, you know, other ones, you know, you, it, it's just it's very rare. You actually run into people um, other, you know, in this world, it's, it's conferences and those haven't been happening in the last couple of years. Um, so we'll see, but yeah, technology, I mean, that's our one blessing, I think with COVID, like if this would have happened 10, 15 years ago, you know, where we didn't have stuff like zoom or let, you know, let's say we didn't even have cell phones. Um, you know, it would be a much more difficult thing to, to process, you know, people are working from home. Like I, I think in the general dynamics, I don't think it ever really changed that much. You know, people are walking to their home office instead of hopping in their car and commuting 40 or 50 minutes. Um, but, you know, they were quickly adapted to it. And, you know, as we're seeing on the news, a lot of people have decided that they prefer to, to keep things that way. Um, you know, so like, and I think the, the world, as far as general work, would have probably shifted in that direction over time, like over maybe the next 10, 15 years. Um, but this, you know, the virus just escalated so many different things and, and that, that being one of them. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a weird thing. Like there's, there's so many people in, in my life right now that I just physically haven't met. Um, I'm, I'm hoping with Thriller Fest coming back, you know, this coming year that I'll, I'll finally get to put, you know, I can shake some real hands. Yeah, I'm think I'm I think that one of the big positives that's going to come out of this is is exactly what you said. I mean, that it's gonna it's the, the fact that it's changing the workplace and and I agree with you in a way that I think it would have gone eventually, but this just kind of you know made it happen faster, <laughs> and and I think it's you know like I know people who their companies just sold their buildings and stuff and realized we don't need all this overhead. And, you know, so I think that that, you know, keep it, letting people be at home and be spend more time with their families and hopefully shift the 40 hour work week in general, which, you know, to me is just kind of the 40 hour work week is so outdated. And, and, and there's all kinds of studies just saying that it's, it's not that helpful and people are actually more productive if they work less, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. so hopefully I'm hoping it changes all that stuff. Well, think about your own writing. Like I know for me personally, I, I need to write first thing in the morning. And for the most part, like those creative juices are gone, you know, by like 11, 1130 or so. And I can, I can still function and do regular business stuff. Um, but if I try to sit down at noon or one o'clock and try to get some kind of work count in instead of first thing in the morning, it wouldn't happen. Um, so if you think about it that way, you know, I've, I've personally got about three hours of productive productivity in me, um, you know, and I, I could go to an eight hour uh, job, but they're probably still going to get that three hours worth of productivity out of me and, you know, five hours of me doing random things to, to eat up the clock. Um, and I remember that from the corporate world when I used to go into the office, you know, like first thing in the morning, I, I pound through my emails, I'd knock out all kinds of stuff, you know, by 11, 1130 or so I start slowing down and then you get lunch and you come back and look at the clock and like, oh, I got four more hours left. Yeah. You, you gradually get slower and slower. And, you know, I, I used to work from home quite a bit because, you know, my job, you know, like it, 
the, the time that I spent on it, like it was totally up to me. So like I, I had certain things I had to get done. Um, there were deadlines on those things and I could you know knock them out really fast if I really put the you know my nose to the grindstone or I could spread them out over a couple of weeks, but it was totally my call. So I used to work from home like almost every Friday and I definitely didn't work anywhere near as hard when I was at home. Um, yeah, you know, I might, you know, work until like 1130 or 12, but you know, th that afternoon, you know, I was pretty much goofing off and kind of pretending to be at the office. You know, I'd have my cell phone so I could answer my calls and, you know, I'd be checking my emails and stuff like that, but I wasn't hundred percent in the game anymore. So that makes me wonder what's happening with the corporate world now that it shifted to a lot of people working at home. Like, are, are they getting, are they less productive, you know, actually being at home or are they able to keep up, you know, with what they were doing before? And man, that, that's a whole other thing. I mean, like, how do you, you know, as a manager, like, how do you police that like how do you make sure your employees are actually at their desk doing what they're supposed to be doing and, and not on a disney cruise or you know hanging <laughs> out somewhere pretending you know like because you can fake it just as easily as you can you can do it it's going to catch you sooner or later but you know it's i, I think this next year is going to be kind of interesting yeah i think only time will tell i think as time goes on you know we're going to see what kind of impact it really is having on people's productivity and and you brought up something man that i i personally have really been uh you know, trying to accept over the last few years, like I struggled for a long time with the whole, the, how much time I'm putting in working as a writer, you know, like, cause when, when I transitioned, it was, you know, I, on Friday, I was working a full-time job. You know, I was a manager, I had 15 employees and then I walked out that job and then come Monday morning, I was like my wife and daughter went to school and I was like, okay, I guess I need to sit down and write now, you know? And, and, and all of a sudden I was my own boss, but I struggled for a long time with the guilt of trying to fill as much time as I could. And it wasn't until the last couple of years where I really just realized, you know what, like part, part of the reason I'm doing this is because I want to own my time. And if I can literally only work like three hours in a day and I don't have anything else to do, like I don't have podcast record, I don't really have marketing or admin work it's okay for me just to stop working for the day and go do something else. <laughs> you know, it's funny you mentioned guilt because I, I definitely had that too. And, I, and nobody really talks about that. No, they don't. But yeah. I mean, when you go from working, I mean, I was doing 60 to 80 hours a week when I was working as a chief compliance officer to, you know, like you said, I literally, you know, one Monday I'm, I'm a writer full time, just like that. Like that switch flipped over the weekend. And, you know, I, I you know, just like today, I, I knocked out my words by 11, 1130. And, you know, I'm, I'm looking at, you know, my computer and like all my friends are still at work. They still have half their business day left. And I think that's where a lot of that comes from. Like, you, you know, the, you know, the other people in your life are still out there doing that eight to 10 hours and, you know, you're, you're done. And like, you feel guilty about that. And like, you have to come to terms with that. Like, you know, for the longest time, I forced myself to keep going and keep working, and, but I, it wasn't productive stuff. Like I can get words done in the afternoon, but they're not as good. And half the time I end up cutting them anyway. You know, but I, for the, probably the first year I, I did that, like I forced myself just out of that guilt to, you know, just try and keep up with my friends and, you know, knowing that my, my best friend was driving a truck for a grocery store, you know, yeah. these crazy shifts. And like, I'm like, I'm done with my work after three hours, like, and I'm making more money. Like, how is that? You know, it just, everything seemed completely out of whack, but yeah, I got used to it. <laughs> you know, like I've got an alarm that goes off every day at quarter to three and like, that's my quitting bell. It doesn't matter what's on my desk. I get up and I, I go for my run and, um, you know, get home, shower, hang out with my daughter and my family and I try to make time for all that. Cause that's just as important as everything else. Yeah. It's funny. Like my, one of my best friends, uh, David, uh, he lives out in Denver and, and he, he'll joke with me. He'll, you know, he'll see, 
he'll see me like jump online on Xbox or something at like noon. And I think he gets a alert on his phone and he'll be like, just another typical Monday, huh? And I'm like, dude, I've been up since like five in the morning and I've gotten a lot of shit done, you know, like been writing and stuff, you know, but, but like that would perpetuate some of that guilt for me because that dude like runs his own coffee business. He's a real estate agent. He is a property manager and works these, you know, does a lot of stuff, but um, yeah. So I think that perpetuates in that for me, but, but I'm curious. So you kind of, you kind of hinted at it and you said when your day ends and stuff, but like, what does a typical day look like for you now? It's it's me being I, I've got a form of autism called Asperger's, which we've talked about on Writers Inc. Um, it, it, because of that, like my day is very structured. Like if 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 I don't follow a schedule, I, I get completely out of whack. Um, so my alarm clock goes off at the crack of seven. Um, I wander down to my office, so that's my daily commute. I grab my coffee on the way, uh, and usually about seven thirty, I, I I start writing. I, I don't turn the internet on until I'm done with my words for the day, because the second I flip that switch, all these emails come in. You know with things from my agent, from my film agent, my attorney, this going on, that going on. And, you know, all that noise in my head will keep me from getting anything productive done. So I make sure I get the words done first, because that's always the most important. Um, so usually about 11, 1130, I, I wrap that up and I, I shoot for like two to 3000 words a day. Um, and I, I, I talked about this on the other podcast too. Like I tend to end, um, you know, like mid sentence, like I always know what's coming next. Um, I, I try not to write until the well runs dry. Um, cause then I feel the next day I can just hit the ground running again. Uh, but then I flip that switch, all the emails start coming in. Um, so from about 1130 to, you know, usually about two 30 quarter to three, um, I'm just doing the business stuff. Um, I purposely only book interviews now between 11, um, in the morning and two o'clock in the afternoon. Um, I use Acuity, a scheduling system for that. Um, and I had to do that because one of the biggest problems that I had is when I started getting published in foreign countries and foreign languages, you know, they're all in these different time zones. So I started getting these interview requests, you know, from TV and from radio and podcasts and, you know, all these different people at, you know, 11 o'clock at night, one o'clock in the morning, this time, that time. And, and in the beginning, I didn't say no to anybody, you know, because I wanted to get as much of that press as, as I could. Um, but, you know, I had to find a balance there. So now I've used a scheduling system. I make the, they, they have to fall into my schedule or it just doesn't happen. Um, you know, you, you have to draw a line in the sand, I think, for a lot of that stuff. Um, so quarter to, to three, my alarm goes off. I get up, I go for, for my run. Um, and I use that time to, to think about what I'm going to write the next day and kind of work out those, those plot issues. Um, then I come home, grab a quick shower and just hang out with my daughter, eat dinner. And, you know, the rest of the time is, is family time. And I, I try to stay out of my office. Um, because if, if I walk in there, you know, I'd see where I left off on the book, you know, it's, it's still open on my MacBook, like any of those little things will grab me and, and bring me back in again. And, you know, it, it's, it's just, it's really important to balance that. And, and I think honestly, having kids and having a family is, is, was the deciding factor for me because I've got a lot of friends that are writers. Um, you know, Dean Koontz, we talk about all the time. He doesn't have any children. He does 80 hours a week in front of his computer working on books. And this is why the guy is turning out five or six novels a year. Um, and when he gets towards the tail end of a novel, like he'll work, you know, through one o'clock in the morning, two o'clock in the morning, like his wife is sliding pizza under the door just to make sure he's still alive. Um, and that's probably what I would be like if I didn't have, you know, kids, you know, like having a wife and a child like that, that forced that balance into my life. And I'm, I'm grateful for that because, you know, I don't think anybody should work that hard. I mean, he enjoys it, obviously, but, you know, you need balance. Yeah, you got to have balance and you and you have to have boundaries. And I, I agree with you. I think having the family definitely helps like set up some of those boundaries. You know, I like, for instance, I have, you know, three days a week uh, where my wife is working and I have to, I have to be done to go pick up my daughter. Like I have to leave here at two 30 
And then after that, you know, that time is with her. So it sets up a really healthy boundary on the, especially on those days where I know, okay, I need to be done with everything I want to be done with by this day, including like my own personal stuff. So if I, you know, try to go for a walk or go to the gym or whatever as well, you know, have all that, have all that stuff worked in, um, you know, so, so yeah, having those boundaries is good. Now, speaking of which, one thing I'm curious about, cause I can see the room you're in and like, I was joking with you before the podcast, I'm not used to seeing your office from this angle. Cause you're usually sitting at the desk behind you, but it doesn't, you don't have a door on your office. So like, I, I can't see the whole, but like, I do. Let me see if I can flip this around so you can see. So you, the desk is what you normally see. Um, okay. So yeah, I thought there was like a, there is a staircase back yeah, there. Okay. There's, there's the French doors going into okay. the hallway. Like little camera monitor will turn, but there's, there's a couch on the other side underneath the window where I can chill and, and read and, and stuff like that. So it's kind of like my own little, little man cave. So is there a door at the top of that staircase? Oh, there's no stairs. Oh, I thought there was, I thought there were stairs. Oh, that's a cabinet or something. Okay. Or like yeah, some kind yeah. of table back there, but yeah. uh, okay. So, so those doors I saw those, I guess, cause what I'm getting at is I, I was curious, like curious what kept your daughter from just coming in your office whenever it was kind of, but now I see you have those doors over there. Yeah. And she actually knows, um, like if I, if she catches me out in the kitchen, she'll, she'll come up to me and she'll be like, dad, I'll let me put you back in your chair so you can make the words. And she'll like push me back into my office and shove me into my chair. Um, and she won't come into my office without knocking, um, which is awesome. You know, at four years old, like she actually understands that. And right now I've got a little tag that says recording um, that I put on my door just to let, you know, my wife and daughter know that I'm, I'm doing something. Um, and if that's on there, like she won't even knock on the door. So like she totally gets all that stuff, um, which, which is cool. But, you know, she's just as good at guilting me into doing other things. Like she stops in here every morning when she first wakes up. And, you know, again, family time, I purposely make like a good 10 or 15 minutes and I just play with her. Um, you know, just like first thing in the morning before we get started. And she's really good at like, well, let's just play one more hide and seek or one more this, one more that. And it, it's freaking hard to say no to a four-year-old. Um, but you know, we're, we all kind of understand what, what we need to do. I mean, I'm blessed when it comes to that. My wife is fantastic at, you know, keeping her, you know, for the bulk of the day, um, you know, which is a huge help for me. Um, and, you know, we trade off like on Fridays, my wife gets about half the day to herself and I watch our daughter, you know, by myself. Um, Sundays I watch her all day. Sunday is what we call a dad a day. Um, so it's just me and my daughter just goofing off all day long um, to give my wife some free time. So you, know, you got to find some balance there too. Um, you know, we're, we're very lucky that we're both able to work from home. I mean, my wife is a writer as well, and she runs our little real estate empire. Um, you know, all stuff that we could do from the house, you know, which is, which is great. We set our own hours and, you know, everything goes from there. Yeah. It's, it's, it's great to have a partner where you, you know, you can have that balance and, and trade time and all that sort of stuff. You know I mean? It's that's, that's so, 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 so important to, to, to well, do I, that stuff, to keep your I family. joke about it. I mean, like my, my first wife didn't understand what I liked about being a writer and, and, you know, I, I joke about it and say, that's why she's my first wife. <laughs> <laughs> my first wife used to give me a hard time about locking myself in my office for those four or five hours a day. Cause I, I wasn't getting paid for it at the time. Not really. Um, you know, but I was, you know, making up stories and putting down the writing my first book or attempting to and things like that. And like, she just, she didn't get it. Um, and you know, when you, when you're in that room by yourself and you're trying to focus on that kind of thing, knowing that your spouse is on the other side of the door, mad that you're doing it, you know, that, that, that doesn't help the dynamic either. So you really, you know, every successful writer I know has, has a spouse or significant other that totally understands what they're doing and is totally supportive of it. And, and this is one of those careers where you absolutely need that. You know, every, everybody's got to be on board with it in order for it to work. 
Yeah. I mean, I, I, I praise Catherine every chance I get because, you know, I, back in 2014 is when I really started getting serious about this and started learning about specifically independent publishing and, and all, and all that. And, uh, you know, she believed in me and let me come in my office and work, you know, when, and when our daughter was only months old, she was like, yeah, you can, that's fine. Go in there. And I mean, obviously I was helping out and stuff and it usually was after my daughter went to bed and stuff. And then I've of course gotten the routine of working before work and all that sort of stuff. But, uh, but yeah, it's, 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 it's amazing when you have a partner or a spouse who, who is supportive. It's, it's so crucial. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so man, I'm like, one thing I'm kind of curious about is cause, cause I mean, we, we, this is the first time you and I have really just gotten to chat like this. Um, usually we have that other asshole <laughs> there with us, usually Jay. So, uh, you know, but I'm finally off doing something on my own, but, um, and I know a little bit about this, but I think this would be really just kind of interesting for the listeners too. But how, how did you get, you know, you're, you're obviously a New York Times bestseller now, and, you know, you're right with James Patterson, um, and, and, and all that, but like, how did you get from the corporate life and all the things you were doing before? Cause you've done some pretty cool things. I mean, you were a magazine writer, you were in the music industry, like, I don't know, like kind of take us through your path to get where you are now. Yeah. I'll give you the cliff notes version. Yeah. So, you know, I was in college. I was at the art Institute of Fort Lauderdale down in Miami and I worked for RCA records. That was my first you know, real job. And I, I was doing that while I was in school and I was a production coordinator, which was basically a glorified babysitter. So when they had a, a recording artist that came into the Miami Fort Lauderdale area, I would pick that person up at the airport. I would get them to the radio stations for their interviews, get them to their hotel, get them to the concert and then get them back on their airplane. Um, you know, and hopefully not not lose anybody. Um, and you know, while the art institute is expensive, it's a private school. So I was racking up these giant student loans, and I, I quickly realized that I could interview these people that I had in the car with me because I had like Madonna in the car with me for like three days at a time, like just just me, her, and her bodyguard, and me, her, and her assistant or publicist or something. Um, so I would start interviewing these people, and then I would take those interviews and I would sell them to you know multiple magazines, so Teen People, uh, Seventeen Magazine, Tiger Beat, you know, all these magazines that were out in the eighties and 90s, um, I'd rehash that same interview and sell it. And that's how I paid for my, my student loans. Um, from there, I got a phone call from a guy named Paul Galata, who was starting a new magazine in, in Fort Lauderdale called 25th Parallel. Um, he was the editor at Circus Magazine at the time. Um, and he asked if I wanted to, to come on board. Um, and I was the second person that he hired after a guy named Brian Warner, who became Marilyn Manson. Um, so like we had this whole little group down in, in Fort Lauderdale, Miami. Um, and, and, you know, like that whole art scene, you know, like it was a very tight knit group. Like we knew everybody and, you know, we've joked about this, like I'm an extra on a bunch of different movies, like True Lies and stuff that they filmed in, in that area. Um, just because, you know, my friends were working on those things. So they would call me up and, Hey, what are you doing at two o'clock? Come on down to so-and-so and we can throw you in like that, that kind of thing. Um, but when you're working for newspapers and magazines, you, you know, you quickly realize that everybody's got a novel at some stage of development in a desk drawer somewhere. Like any, every reporter, every journalist, they're all working on a book. Um, and I was always very good at grammar and punctuation and that type of thing. So they would start handing me those projects to edit. Um, and that evolved into uh, a career as a, a book doctor and a ghostwriter. Um, so I basically helped tweak other people's novels. And I, I had no formal training in it. I just, I grew up without a television in the house. So we read a lot. Um, that structure of a, a book and a good story just kind of got ingrained in my head. So I would read a book that wasn't quite fully baked. Um, and I would just know, hey, some kind of twist is supposed to happen here. And it didn't, you know, there's something off. 
Um, and I would just start flagging these things. So I did that for a really long time. Uh, but my parents pushed me into the corporate world because they felt nobody could make a living as a writer. You can't do that. You have to get a real job. Um, so I ended up um, going to the corporate life and I was a chief compliance officer for a brokerage firm, um, which is as horrible as it sounds. Um, but it pays really good. And I did that for about 20 some years during the daytime. And then I would come home at night and I would work on these book doctor and ghostwriter projects. Um, and I loved it. Like that was my way of, of detoxing at the end of the day and, and clearing my head. Um, and I did that, you know, roughly for those, those two decades or so. Um, but I ended up having six different books that hit the New York Times bestseller list during that period, all with other people's names on the cover. So books that I either wrote as a ghostwriter or I helped rewrite um, all, were hitting the, these lists. Um, and a lot of my clients at that point, especially towards the end, were, were agents and editors. So like Random House would buy a book that they knew was a good story, but it was 90% there and they couldn't get the author to get that other 10% uh, correct. So they would bring me in as like a hired gun to, to fix these manuscripts. So I had these very candid conversations with, with big editors, um, you know, where they didn't sugarcoat anything. Like typically when they talk to an author, if there's a problem with a book, they kind of dance around the issue. They, they don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. Uh, but when they would call me and tell me about somebody else's book, they would flat out say, this storyline sucks, this guy's terrible with dialogue, this is going on, that's going on. Um, so I quickly learned what the publishers were looking for and what they didn't want. Um, so I had those six books that hit the New York Times list. Um, at that point, like my, my wife pulled me aside and she said, listen, I, I know how much you want to be a writer. Um, we need to find a way to make this work. Um, and, and I was stuck because when you have a job that pays as well as mine did, and I was making, I think it was at the, the height, my salary was 250,000 a year plus bonuses. Um, you can't just walk away from that because we had all the trappings of that. You know, we had, we had a big house, we had cars, we had a boat. Um, you know, our monthly nut was 10 to $12,000 a month. So like we couldn't just quit that. Um, so she came up with this crazy plan. She said, let's buy a duplex in Pittsburgh because um, she had family in Pittsburgh, rent out one side to a tenant, live in the other side, you know, try and get her expenses down to absolutely nothing, sell everything that we own and you know, get it all in the bank. And then, you know, take a look at the bank statement and figure out where we're at and see if we can, you know, make this writing thing work. Um, and we did that. We, we sold everything in Florida. We bought the duplex. We, we moved into the one side. And I remember the day that we sat down at the kitchen table and she showed me the bank statement. She said, well, it looks like you got about 18 months to make it as a writer. Go. <laughs> and that's when, that's when I sat down and I, I wrote Forsaken, um, my, my first novel. Um, and in that book, you know, there's a, it's kind of funny the way that, that book evolved. Um, you know, I wanted to get it done, you know, just get that last page down on paper. And I had to explain where the wife buys a journal. Um, so I wrote that she walked into Needful Things, Stephen King's store, and, and bought it there. Fully expected to have to change that because you can't really do that sort of thing without a bunch of lawyers jumping down your throat. Um, but my wife, you know, again, way smarter than me, she looked at it and she said, no, nah, let's just get King's permission to use it. Well, how do, you, how do you do that? <laughs> you know, so I just kept throwing, I kept getting thrown into these situations where, you know, you, you either could kind of go balls to the wall and do it, or you could just say, no, I'm not even going to try and you could let it go. And I, I'm not the kind of person who backs down from stuff. Um, so we actually tried to go to King's house. He, he lives about 10 minutes from my, my mom's house in Florida. So we hopped in the car with the manuscript and I expected, you know, to find him outside gardening or whatever. And <laughs> I'd, I'd hand off the manuscript. He'd give me the thumbs up and we'd be on our way in 15 minutes. Um, it didn't work out that way. Like, uh, I don't want to get into too much detail, but King's house is pretty difficult to get to. Um, and we, we more or less gave up. And I called a friend of mine, um, a guy named Dallas Mayer, uh, who passed away a few years ago. He wrote under the name Jack Ketchum. Um, I told him what we were doing. And he was a really good friend of King's. And he, he said he had this gravelly voice. Oh, yeah, don't stalk Steve. He hates that. Here's his email address. Just send it to him. And he, he said, send him the book. If he likes it, you'll hear back. If the book sucks, he, you know, he probably won't respond. Just leave him alone. 
Um, so I sent King the, the, the email or the book um, with a little message. And you know, a couple of days later, I got a message back saying, yeah, go ahead and use the reference. Let me know if you need anything. Um, and like, I was totally thrown back by that because I, I you know, expected him to retract it. I expected maybe he, he thought he was talking to Grisham or somebody, you know, somebody else. I'm like, oh, yeah, I didn't mean to send that to you. Uh, but, but he stood by it. He, he let me use it. Um, you know, I, I, I ended up getting cocky at that point. I figured it's going to be easy to get an agent. You know, I've got a book with King's permission and all this other stuff. Um, so I sent out a form letter to about 200 different agents and just queried them. Um, surprise, surprise, when you use a form letter, you don't get a whole lot of responses. Um, but I didn't realize that was the problem. Um, I knew I had a good book, so I just figured, well, I'll try the indie thing. Um, so I hired professionals across the board to get the book out there and ended up putting out it as a, a hardcover, audiobook, paperback, ebook, like all the different formats all at once. I basically mimicked what I saw Random House doing. I figured that's my competition, so I have to do everything that they're doing. Um, got the book out there and I, I just I got really lucky and ended up selling really well. I, I sold about a quarter million copies of it. Um, a lot of that, you know, obviously due to the, the King, you know, tie in um, Publishers Weekly wrote up a big story about me trying to get to his house, you know, which was a failed attempt. Um, but when it appears in Publishers Weekly, a lot of people read it. Um, so the libraries and stuff like that started buying the book, independent bookstores started carrying it um, and it just took off. Uh, so then Fourth Monkey, I was writing that while all this was going on. Um, and at that point, you know, I saw the, the economics of self-publishing and, you know, realized I could just put this out on my own. I don't need a real publisher for this. Uh, but my wife, you know, again, smarter than me, she said, go ahead and query a couple agents, see what happens. And, you know, we'll, we'll figure it out from there. So I, I queried 53 agents. And within two weeks, I had 13 offers of representation. Um, I ended up signing with Krista Nelson, who, you know, a lot of people talk about. She's very progressive when it comes to the literary world. Um, she has no problem with her authors working on the indie side, working in traditional, being hybrid or whatever. She's totally on board with, with anything like that. Um, she ended up getting me a seven-figure deal, um, you know, along with the television and, and film deal um, for Fourth Monkey, um, which was life-changing money. So I never had to, you know, at that point, I knew I wouldn't have to go back to the corporate world. Um, while that was going on, Bram Stoker's family read Forsaken and reached out to me and asked if I'd like to write a prequel to Dracula uh, using Bram's original notes. So it's like I keep capturing lightning in a bottle. It seems to be you know, I tell people a lot of times if we're standing outside not to stand next to me because, you know, karma is going to try to even this shit out at some point. And like, you don't, <laughs> don't want to be right next to me when that happens. Um, but yeah, I ended up writing the prequel to Dracula. Paramount bought that up. Um, it actually sold about a day or two before the print rights sold. Um, and my life has just been crazy. Patterson read Fourth Monkey and, and reached out to me, and we we're on book number four together at this point. Um, I'm having a ball. Yeah, it's funny. I, I wish I remember who I originally heard say this uh, so I could give them credit, but uh, I, I, <laughs> someone had referred to you as the Force Gump of publishing. <laughs> <laughs> which is like my favorite jd's always in the background like drinking a dr pepper even though he's not <laughs> supposed to be there whether it's at stephen king's house or with james patterson or whatever you know um yeah dude it's i mean it's it really is an incredible and inspiring story and it's uh proof that you know sometimes you just it's like what your wife said like what's the worst thing that can happen you know takes take some chances well i tell people that all the time you know the example that i use is like you go to thriller fest you know, you hop in the elevator and, and Lee Child is standing next to you. He's going to be in that elevator with you for 15 to 20 seconds, and then he's going to get off at another floor. What do you do? 
You know, like you could ask him for a blurb and, and worst case, he says no and he walks away. Or you can stand there totally, you know, silent and watch those 15, 20 seconds pass and watch the guy leave. And then your opportunity walks out the door with them. Um, you know, there's no harm in asking, you know, hearing the word no over and over again. That's one of the things that I really got out of talking to a lot of these you know, celebrities back in the day. You know, somebody like Madonna, you know, she heard no so many times in her life, but it only took that one. Yes. You know, like she literally she got off the bus in New York with like ten dollars in her pocket. Like that was her game plan. <laughs> like she she didn't leave room for failure. And that, that's kind of where you, you have to be. Um, so I kind of approach everything that way. I, I figure they're either going to you know work with me or get a restraining order. But one way or the other, it's, you know, I'm going to have an outcome. Yeah, that's one of the biggest things I've learned with my friendship from Jay, because Jay's always been that type, too, where the worst thing someone's going to do is say no. And he's you know, he's, he's reached out to a lot of different people and never heard back. And sometimes thing, I mean, hell you, t- didn't you guys meet on an elevator? Like at, at uh, oh, he, he cornered me at the, the horror writers convention. And, yeah. and if I wanted to do a podcast with him and it, it's honestly not something I had ever thought about doing before, because, you know, as an Aspie, I'm very, you know, I'm introverted for sure, but like public speaking and like public situations are like the most, most scary, terrifying thing for me. Um, but that was why I agreed to do it because I figured that if I put myself in front of a microphone once a week, you know, and, be, and I'm forced to talk, I'm, I'm going to get better at it. Um, and I wanted to improve on that. So I, I, I agreed to, to sign up and do it. And we, we've had fun with that too. I mean, it's funny. We, we keep getting all these crazy names, you know, these guests, these big names and he throws them out there. He's like, you can't get this guy. And then like five minutes later, I get him. <laughs> <laughs> he it's likes like, challenging you. That's, that's the yeah, thing. We, we came this close on Bill Clinton. And, and the only reason we didn't, we didn't get him is because of the, you know, the legal hoops we would have to jump through in order to make that happen. Um, when you talk to an ex-president on, on a podcast, you know, there's, there's a lot of vetting that needs to happen. And yeah. you know, that, that's honestly what, what kept it from, from, from appearing, you know, and I, I don't back down ever. They probably saw a picture of Jay and were like, man, we'd have to do a lot of extra vetting for that dude. <laughs> if, if the president's going to talk to him, but, but I got to tell you, man, one thing that you said and all that, that, that I just love so much is you know, I have a lot of authors will come up to me at conferences or whatever. And one of the most common things I get, I, I get asked is, you know, aside from the fact of, you know, how do you make time with all these responsibilities, which is actually was kind of how this podcast came about because I, you know, that because of that question I get. Uh, but the other one is, you know, how do you get to the point where you're making enough money to, to go full time? And what I always say to people is the first thing I will, I'll be like, not exactly like this. Cause this is a little personal as I'll say, okay, well, like what kind of life are you living? How much debt do you have? You know, because a lot of times it's easier to eliminate expenses. Like if you, if you don't have as much money going out, you don't need as much coming in. So like, how bad do you really want to do this? And cause when, cause when I was new, when I was trying to want to write and stuff, you know, my wife and I looked at things. We're like, okay, like what bills can we eliminate? You know, where, where can we, you know, cause this is more important to me than like buying things. And I say all that to say that what your wife, the idea your wife came to you with about like, let's just move into a duplex and get rid of all this stuff and just buy you some time. Like that, that's amazing, <laughs> you know? And, and, and it was, it, it took a lot of courage on her part. Cause a lot of spouses, I mean, I mean, I hope you know how lucky you are that you're with her because a lot of spouses 
would never go that far to say, I know you, I believe in you so much that we're going to get rid of all this stuff just so you can try to do this. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the lifestyle that we gave up, you know, it's like, it, it was like a television lifestyle. I mean, we, our house was huge. We had a boat, we had cars, we, there was nothing that we didn't want that we couldn't get. Um, but yeah, a lot of that was dead. Um, and it's funny because I, I live on an island now and I'm literally surrounded by rich people. Like the medium house value, I think is $2 million where I live. Um, you could go through the 900 homes here and I bet you, you wouldn't find one brand new car because these people understand that you're financially, it's a lot, makes a lot more sense to buy a used car or buy a car that's even a year off the lot than it does to go out there and buy something new. And most of these people, if not all of them, like they don't have car payments, they're, they're buying these for cash. Um, because a lot of people don't sit back and do the math, you know, like they look at this new car that they want to get and they, you know, they look at the numbers that are in the commercial. Oh, I, well, I need $3,000 down and then my payment's going to be $2.99 a month. You know, that can I afford $2.99? That's what they think about. But in the end, if you sat down and did the math and figured out how much you're actually paying for that car, you know, in the end, by, with all that interest, you're buying that car two or three times over. You know, so you're so much better off buying something for cash, even if it's a beater, you know, at the beginning, you just buy a beater and then you, you trade up over time. Um, you know, it's the same thing with houses, you know, like we, we don't have any mortgages on any of our properties and we own a number of properties um, for that exact same reason. Because if you look at your mortgage statement, how much of that mortgage statement is interest? That's money you're giving away to somebody else that you could be spending on yourself or on, you know, this or on that. Um, so, yeah, when you can reset to zero and, and try to avoid debt is, you know, like it's the plague. Um, I mean, there, there is good debt, you know, like, you, you know, like if you can borrow money and that money will make you more money, you know, it, it's worthwhile. Like one of the things that I actually do right now is called hard money lending. Um, I've got a, a home equity line uh, at two and a half percent. So I can I can basically borrow up to a million dollars at two and a half percent. Um, I can loan that same money out to other people at higher interest rates, you know, so I do that, you know, so if somebody is flipping a house and they need a half million dollars to buy that house, I'll, I can borrow the money at two and a half. I can loan it to them at seven or eight. And, and now all of a sudden I'm the bank, I'm making that interest and I'm not doing a damn thing for it other than sitting on my butt. Um, so, you know, that's one of the things my wife and I kind of figured out over time through reading, through listening to podcasts. Uh, it kills me that they don't teach this sort of thing in school. Um, oh. You know, me like in, in Caller's Game in, in chapter 10, and we were talking about this the other day, there, there's a rant in there that my, my protagonist goes off on about uh, predatory lending. Um, and anybody who's gone to college has seen this. Your very first day of college, you walk into orientation um, and the hallways are lined with companies trying to loan you money. You know, the credit card companies are all there trying to sign you up. You know, the rent is all there, like all these different things. And they'll tell you, well, you can, you know, you can pay your rent with your student loans. You can pay off your credit cards with your student loans. You can consolidate all your debt and, and you can get your payments down. Like they tell you all these things. And like, it makes perfect sense when you're 18 because you don't know any better. Um, but when you look back on it, like that is how you get caught in this horrible trap where you end up walking out of college with $100,000 in debt um, that you're paying on for the rest of your life. And like, I just really wish through like grade school, through high school, that, you know, there was a class that just kind of taught the importance of that. I mean, there, Rich Dad, Poor Dad is a fantastic book that's short that explains it. And there's plenty of other ones out there, um, but they just don't teach it in school because I think in a lot of ways, you know, society wants you to be in that trap. They want you to have a mortgage. They want you to have a car payment because it helps keep everybody in line. Um, you know, so there, there's a lot of reasons for all that different stuff. But when we sat down and we did that, that little experiment and we, we basically started over, you know, we, we, we won't buy a brand new car anymore, like unless we can buy it for cash. We won't buy a house unless we can buy it for cash. And like, those are conscious decisions that we're making now that I wish I would have made 20 years ago. Yeah, it's uh, 
it's funny, man. Like uh, you, you said so many things that are spot on, like, especially in school with education. I mean, we, like kids, we, I learned so much stuff in school that's like useless now. And if I would have learned more stuff about personal economics, I mean, when I was at my, my last job, I was at the president of my company was, you know, another great book. And this is the, he was an example of this is the millionaire next door, which, mm-hmm. which is a prime example of how most millionaires are. My, my, the president of my old company, you know, he always bought used cars. He, uh, he bought all his clothes from Goodwill. Like he, he was a little extreme. Like he, he, uh, I think he was kind of on the spectrum too. And, uh, and he, he had a huge beard and kind of like me, but he could tell you, um, he could tell you how much money he would spend in razors a year if he had, if he had to shave and how much time he would spend shaving. And he was like, yeah, all this time I would spend, I mean, like down to the minute and he would be, he had calculated it. And he was like, I could be reading books with that time or doing something else. Like, but I learned so much from him about personal finance and just, you know, you don't have to buy new cars and, and have debt. And, 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 um, our only debt is our house. Like that's it. It was our mortgage and it's yeah. a small mortgage and stuff. Cause I just don't believe in having the debt because to me, I want the financial freedom. Well, it's funny because when you have like all that stuff, like you, it's really not that important. You know, like we, we, we thought that having that huge house in Florida and all those, those fun toys and stuff, we thought it was important until we got rid of it and we didn't miss any of it. Not really. Um, you know, we, we downsized into like that apartment that we moved into, I think was 700 square feet from 4,500 square feet. Um, so we had to get rid of just about everything. You know, we didn't have a choice. You know, we, we got rid of books. We got rid of this. We got rid of that just to, to squeeze it all into that, that space. Uh, but then, you know, after a couple of months of living like that, we realized we didn't need any of that stuff to begin with. Um, you know, so it, it changes your perspective on all of it. You know, like the, the bigger your like my house right now is just pretty big and like, it's very easy to get carried away with, with filling it up with stuff, you know, but again, that's, that's what society kind of wants you to do. So like, we're, you know, we're very careful to, to not do that. And we're turning it into like what we consider our, our perfect place to live. It's got everything that we want in it and it's a great location and everything, but you know, you're, you're not going to see, you know, expensive artwork on the walls or, or anything silly like that. You know, just that, that's not where we want to put our, our money. I'd rather put it into the college fund for our daughter and, you know, take some vacations and get some experiences and, and have some fun. I mean, you're only here one time. You got to enjoy it. Exactly. I mean, I'm, I'm a huge proponent of minimalism and mi- minimalism is so often misunderstood by people. Like I, I can tell them I'm kind of like, I consider myself kind of a minimalist and they come to my house. They're like, Oh, but you have a couch and you have this and you have all this stuff. I'm like, it's not, there's, it's, there's no template for it. It's what it's, it's what is the minimal amount of stuff for you that brings you joy. And, and I like, I'm with you, like you, once stuff is gone and you get out the whole aspect of trying to keep up with the Joneses, which really is all people are trying to do most of the time. Like you realize, like, I realize I'm like, man, there's only a few things on a day to day basis that I really use all the time. And I love, and like, I can't live without, you know, and I like, not that I can't live without them. Cause like, like I could live without my video game systems, but I wouldn't be as happy, but like those things, my Kindle, my, like, like there's very few things on a day to day basis. I like, I really use all the time, you know, and I've thought about doing uh this podcast. I really like called the minimalist. They, they have this really extreme thing. I, I can I don't think I can get my wife on board for this, but they, they talk about this thing. One of the guys did what he called a packing party. And he literally packed everything in his house. Like he was moving. 
and then and then like literally put everything in boxes and then as he needed it he went and pulled stuff out and then after i think it was like a month anything that he hadn't pulled out he just donated because he was like if i don't need this after a month i probably don't need it at all and he didn't open the boxes back up he didn't look he just went and donated all of it and I'm like, man, that would be awesome to do something like that. Yeah, I honestly did that to a certain extent when we left Florida because we were in that house for 16 years and, and I had boxes there that I hadn't unpacked the whole time. You know, like they, they went into a closet or they went into the attic and they just sat there. And like when it came time to move, I, I did exactly that. I didn't even bother to open them. You know, I figured whatever yeah. it is, I've gotten by 16 years without them, they, they can't possibly be that important. You know, so I just went to the, the donate pile. Yeah. Like I was, I was joking with my, my dad and he'll probably listen to this. So I'm sorry, dad, that I'm outing you on this, but uh, yeah, I was joking with him not too long ago because he always talks about how much he would just love to leave and love to move and, you know, live in a, live in a camper. My mom just won't do it. But then I, I called him out. I'm like, well, you could, there's lots of, like, he has a whole closet, like shelves of VHS tapes. He's like, oh, I don't want to get rid of those. I'm right. like, do you, when's the last time you even owned a VCR? <laughs> You know, like, like that would, that would be a really good place to start to get rid of stuff. But, uh, but yeah, man, well, so man, like, I want to make sure I ask you about this before we get out, um, get out of here. Cause we, we got like a few more minutes, but, uh, but so you, one thing I think is kind of interesting is you became, you know, you mentioned earlier, your, your daughter's four. Um, and so you became, I always feel like I became a dad kind of late, <laughs> you know, cause my daughter, my daughter was born right after I turned 30. Um, but, uh, but I mean, you definitely, you became a dad, a dad a little bit later. Um, yeah. so I don't know, like how I, I, I don't really know how to ask what I'm trying to ask. Like, cause, cause your experience is your experience, but I guess, I guess what I could ask is like how, you know, living, all your life and not being a parent, not having that responsibility. Like how has becoming a dad kind of changed you, you feel? Well, I, I always, I mean, a big part of me was waiting until I felt like I would be ready. Um, and you, you never actually, you're never like, ready, dude. No, like, I, I'm 50 right now. And like, I literally feel, you know, just like I'm, a, I'm still a teenager, you know, like I still have the same thoughts, you know, like every, it's a very weird thing to explain. Like, you know, when you're a young kid, you look up these, these older people and you're like, Oh, they know what they're doing. I'm like they, they don't, no, they don't. <laughs> Adults have no clue. Um, yeah, I was married once before. And with my first wife, like we made a conscious decision not to have kids. So I think that was a big part of it. Um, and then when, you know, that marriage came apart and I, I got remarried to the, the Dana, the woman I'm married to now, um, you know, like I, something flipped in my head. Like, I, I don't know if it was just because now I'm with the right person and I realized this is the right person to make, to raise a family with, but something clicked there, um, and decided that we wanted to do that. Um, the other part of it is I wanted to make sure I was financially able to, you know, like when we first moved into that duplex, you know, we're making next to nothing, you know, trying, we were going in the opposite direction. I didn't want to bring a kid into that world. Um, I wanted to make sure that we were financially, you know, responsible about it because children are expensive, um, you know, and, and that aside, like, you know, it's hard enough to, to exist on this planet without having, you know, uh, so many different things. And like, I didn't want to bring a child in that was handicapped straight off the bat from a financial standpoint or a living standpoint. Like I wanted to make sure I could at least give them the best leg up. Um, so that was part of it too. So, you know, we, we didn't, just really didn't start trying until we felt like we were, we were there. Um, unfortunately for me, that happened a little later, but you know, the, the flip side of that is I think it's keeping me young, you know, like yesterday, like, you know, yesterday was one of those data days and I spent the entire Sunday, you know, 
running circles around the house, playing hide and seek, you know, playing tag, doing this, doing that. And like that, that's keeping me young. You know, like I've, I've got so many friends that are the same age as me and their kids are already all grown up. And then, you know, a lot of them have grandkids at this point. Um, and you know, they, they look like they're 50. <laughs> like, I mean, I, I personally don't feel like I'm 50. I'd like to think I don't look like I'm 50. Um, and I, and I think a lot of it has to do with the, that particular choice. Um, you know, I've gotten to know uh, Jim Patterson pretty well too. And he had his son, you know, pretty late in life. Um, you know, so he's been kind of a sounding board for a lot of these, these decisions for me too. So, you know, there, there's that. Um, it's, it's, a, it's just a weird thing. I think, it, you know, if you have kids in your twenties, I think you're a lot, it's a lot easier to keep up with them. Um, you don't get worn out quite as much, but you know, you're, you're a little bit more grounded if you're 40 something when, when you do it. Um, I've got one friend from high school. She's actually, she was married once before has kids that are adult. Um, and she's got a, a she's married again. Um, I think they got married about five or six years ago and she's got a three-year-old. Um, you know, so she's doing it all over again. So she's kind of got the experience from both sides. And we've had a lot of discussions about what's different and what's not and, and things like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, for me, a lot, big portion of it just came down to like, if I'm going to bring a, a, a life into this world, I want to make sure that I can give that, that life everything I possibly can to, to try and uh, succeed, you know, over time. I didn't want to handicap them. Yeah, it's funny. My, my daughter's best friend, her parents are uh, in their you know, mid to late 40s. And, uh, and, and the mom, her oldest daughter is 24 or 25, I think. And then, and then so their youngest daughter is six <laughs> or seven now, I guess. So it's, uh, they, they have the, the whole spectrum there, you know, but, but I love what you brought up about, uh, you know, it, it keeping you young. I think that's a great way to look at it. And, you know, I, I think the spot you're in is really awesome because, you know, one of the things that I was told, and I even said to you, you know, you're never ready. And the other thing is that, you know, you're, I, I was always told you're never going to have enough money, you know, and, and I think the fact that you were able, it may have taken a little bit longer, you know, but uh, the fact that you were able to like get yourself in that awesome financial position, because I think part of what I was worried about was like, when do you know what enough is? You know what I'm saying? But, but you guys clearly got into a really good position. And, and like you said, hopefully you're going to get to raise your daughter without her having to worry about very much, which is awesome. That's, that's the goal. I mean, we, we literally hit that reset button when we moved into that duplex and, you know, all, all these things were, were part of those decisions, you know, yeah. so. Well, before we go ahead, get out of here, I, I would hate not to ask. I do have to ask, uh, dude, what was it like? Uh, looking through the Bram Stoker notes and stuff. I mean, that's, I think it's so cool, you know, for you kind of brought up, you know, you got to write the, the Dracula prequel with uh, Dacre Stoker, who's the right. great grandnephew of Brom. And I'm just curious, like what that had to be amazing. Yeah, that, that was wild. Um, so I, I first met Dacre at, at the Horror Writers Convention, um, and apparently he, he knew who I was. He had read Forsaken, and the members of his family had read it, because there's, there's a whole estate involved in, in this sort of thing. Um, and they had been trying to find somebody to write this prequel for a while, and, and he asked me at that, that conference. Um, and, you know, I obviously said yes to it, but we couldn't really talk a whole lot about it. So he invited my wife and I to a, a cabin that he had in the Carolina mountains for the weekend. 
Um, so that's where we really dove into all this. And the first day we were there, we did nothing but just hiking and just kind of got to know each other a little bit. Um, then like the, the second night we were there, he disappeared for a couple minutes. He came back with this big old wooden trunk and set it on the kitchen table and opened it up. And it was everything that had been on Bram's desk when he wrote the original Dracula. Um, and it, just seeing that was just, it was, it was very weird because, you know, obviously it's, you know, incredibly important artifacts you know, for anybody to have. But at the same time, I saw a lot of the same stuff that I have on my own desk. Um, you know, like he had notes for, for Dracula written on the back of laundry receipts. Like he had, he had plotted out the novel in a day timer, um, which I didn't even think existed back in the 1800s, but he, he was a, a theater manager. So he had access to that kind of thing. And if you think about it, it makes perfect sense. You know, Monday the 15th, this happened. Tuesday, this happened. Yeah. You know, so he plotted out the, the book that way. Um, he had all these maps. Um, one of the things that we've learned about Bram since then is he had actually been researching Dracula for his entire adult life. Like we actually found notes at the Marsh um, uh, Library in uh, Dublin um, that he had underlined passages in, in books and things like that back when he was 16, like information on Dracula. And he didn't actually start writing the book Dracula until he was in his 40s. So like his entire life, he was working on this, um, you know, his, his journals and all this stuff. So seeing all that was incredible. Um, what, and, you know, Dacre, once he showed me that, he, he sprung something on me that I was never aware of. And that's that the first hundred pages of Dracula, actually the first 103 pages of the book were edited out. Um, the, Jonathan Harker on the train is actually page 103 of the original manuscript. Um, and the reason for that is Bram originally tried to write Dracula as a true story. Like when he walked it into his publisher, he said, this is a true story. Vampires are real. Here you go. Um, publisher pushed back on it. And, you know, because Jack the Ripper was running around London at the time and they were worried about what would happen if they actually put that message out there. Uh, and you have to put your head back into, you know, 1800s. Like people believed in all this stuff. Um, you know, seances were the way they passed time. They didn't have television. So if you went to a party, there was a good chance there was going to be a seance and people were talking, telling ghost stories. And, you know, so they believed in vampires back then. Um, but his editor didn't want to put it out, forced him to take all this, you know, this stuff out. A lot of it was autobiographical and, and it basically turned it into a work of fiction. Um, and, you know, Bram needed the money, so he allowed him to do it. And the, the book came out. Um, and Dacre had basically assembled a lot of this information over time. So the goal for Dracul, the prequel to Dracula, was to reassemble those first hundred some pages and tell the story that Bram actually wanted to tell. So we, we outlined it. We put the, the story together. We figured that we had it you know, pretty much nailed down. We, we, we thought we had all the facts together, but we needed to verify it. Um, and I found the only original copy of the uh, Dracula manuscript in existence um, was actually found in a barn in Pennsylvania. Um, Dacre actually knows how it got there, but it's got a crazy story there. Um, but Paul Allen bought it at, a, um, at auction, uh, the co-founder of Microsoft. Um, so I tracked that down and I actually reached out to Paul Allen's people and asked if we could see it. Um, for two reasons. Like for me, it felt like a crime that nobody in the Stoker family actually had ever seen the original Dracula manuscript. Um, and, you know, secondly, just to verify some of this information, because, you know, obviously we're, we're going out on a limb. There, there are people that have uh, doctorate degrees in Dracula. So we didn't want to, you know, tell a story unless we knew it was accurate. Um, so uh, Paul Allen allowed us to come out to, to Seattle um, and take a look at this manuscript. And they, they locked us in a conference room. We had to put the white gloves on. They took our cell phones away so we couldn't take pictures. A couple guys kind of hovered over us the whole time and they started bringing in these giant leather bound you know, pages. Um, and we started flipping through it. And the first thing we did is look at the first page because we wanted to see where that manuscript started. Um, and it actually started on page 103 and it was crossed out at the top and a one was right next to it. Like Bram literally <laughs> touched it. Um, he scribbled out the chapter number and changed it to chapter one. Um, so even the original manuscript doesn't have these original hundred some pages that were taken out. Um, but what we did learn after we started flipping through is we, we focused on the deleted scenes. 
Um, because, you know, obviously this wasn't done on a computer, it was on paper. So when Dan had, or Dan, um, when Bram had to delete a scene, he crossed it out in the original manuscript. So we started focusing on those and we realized all of those deleted scenes tied back to the original hundred some pages. So he was basically, you know, flashbacks or this or that. Um, so we were able to use those to recreate it and confirm that our, our story was real. Um, but seeing that manuscript for me was just in, incredible because you know, Bram's notes were in the margins, notes from his editor. Um, the scene where Renfeld, where you know he hits his head and has to drill holes in his head to relieve the, the pressure, his, um, Bram's brother Thornley was a doctor and he actually drew a sketch of the skull and said you would have to drill here, here, and here based on their idea of modern medicine at the time. Um, so like that was in the margins of the book, you know, all kinds of crazy stuff like that and, and seeing that and realizing just how similar it is to today's world, you know, your own editor commenting on stuff. Um, that's what made it feel, you know, just that so much more special to me. You know, it, it felt like Bram was standing over our shoulder the whole time writing that book. And that, that was a lot of fun. Everyone needs an editor, <laughs> even, even, even the best of us. So yeah. Yeah. And that's so cool that you were able to kind of bring it back where the family could see it and stuff too, you know, where Dacre was able to take a look at it and all that. So that's a, man, that's awesome. I'll have to have you back on sometime just to talk more, a little bit more about collaboration and stuff. Cause we didn't even touch on that very much. So no, and that's definitely one of the things I love to do. Awesome. Well, dude, uh, where can people find you on the web? Is there anything new out you want to promote anything like that? It's pretty easy to find me at JD Barker, uh, everything. So that's the website on Twitter, uh, Facebook, Instagram. Um, the, the only one I really play with on my own is Twitter. So the comments on there are, are typically me. Um, as far as new projects, uh, The Noise recently came out with Patterson. Um, we've got some other books coming out early next year, but nothing I can really talk about. A lot of film and TV stuff going on. Um, I just got, I just have my head down, just working on the next book. Awesome. Ron, dude, well, I appreciate you coming on here and spending some time with me. Absolutely. It was fun. All right, dude. I will talk to you later. All right. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Creator Dad Podcast. I'd like to invite you to join the official Creator Dad Discord community where fellow Creator Dads like you and me connect to discuss our creative endeavors, parenting, relationships, music, movies, and TV, sports, money, all the things that dudes love to talk about. Get all the details at patreon.com slash creator dad.